Hi everyone, it's Mike Bird, and I'm back with part two of Evangelicalism and Politics. I am once again talking to Patrick Schreiner, Caitlin Schiss, and Con Campbell, where we continue where we left off last time, talking about the interface between, you know, global evangelicalism, uh, America, faith, Christianity, politics, history, culture. Uh, last time I got them to speak about their particular books and their particular contribution to these kind of discussions. This time around, we're doing something different. I'm asking them some very specific questions. I'm asking questions like, you know, what does the gospel teach us about politics? What can we learn from history and how can we speak into our culture uh, about history? Because the way the Bible has influenced Australia, America, you know, it's not monolithic. It's It's been different. It's, it's kind of ebbed and flow flowed over the centuries and, and it's worth knowing about and you know we also ask questions like uh you know what can american christians learn from christians in other parts of the world and and added to that you know we uh we have a little bit of fun uh you know i ask them some questions about what bible text they prefer their thoughts on someone like constantine and at the very end we get into some real nitty-gritty stuff. We, I, I ask them, you know, the elephant in the room, uh, what do they think about Christian nationalism? I mean, is it really a threat or not? Is it something just that's a few, a few outspoken people on social media? Or is, is it a real thing? And then I also ask them, you know, should we believe in liberal democracy? Uh, I mean, can Christians just be Christian anywhere, you know, whether you're in, you know, the Mongol Empire or living in modern-day Malaysia or Myanmar? Or should Christians be committed to a liberal democracy? Because, you know, even that's a bit of a controversial topic these days. Uh, some people are talking about, you know, maybe we should support a, a post-liberal framework. So there's some real interesting stuff that we get into. And, and, and trust me, uh, Patrick, Caitlin and Con, they bring home the goods. This is a very fun and informative conversation. If you, and if you haven't read their books or you haven't you know, seen them or at least read reviews, you really should go check them out. All the details will be in the show notes. So enjoy this part, the second part of my conversation with Patrick, Caitlin, and Con about evangelicals and politics. I hope you really enjoy it. Okay, well, I am once again joined uh, by some very capable Christian political thinkers in Caitlin Chess, Con Campbell, and Patrick Schreiner. Great to be all, uh, great to be with you all again, uh, continuing our discussion on Jesus, evangelicals, and uh, politics. I want to, I want to kick off with a speed round. So I'll ask you all a question very quickly, and you have to give like an instant answer if, if you can, or, or you can say pass if you, if, if you, or, or no comment if it may get you in trouble. Uh, but we'll we'll see. Tell me what you think about this. Okay, I'll start. I'll start with you, Con. Uh, Go to text, Romans thirteen or Revelation thirteen. Uh, yes. Both. Both. <laughs> okay, Caitlin. Same thing. Romans thirteen or Revelation thirteen. You got to do them together. I think that was the right answer. Okay, and Patrick. Yeah, I mean, I have to say the same thing. I will say. <laughs> Romans 13 is way more popular, so maybe today we need to go to Revelation 13 more. Yeah, I find it's Romans 13 when my party's in charge, and Revelation <laughs> 13 yeah. when the other team is in charge. Yeah. yeah. That's how it goes. Uh, okay, uh, other question. Uh, Constantine, good guy or bad guy? Hit up you, Patrick. Oh, man, that's a really hard one. Um, again, I think it's, it's both and. 
uh, he, there was a lot of good things that he did. And then I think it, it turned out in the long run that it also watered down Christianity. Okay. Caitlin, Constantine, good guy or bad guy? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's mixed. I have to go back to, I mean, there are some things that Augustine wrote that have really, you know, convicted me of how people could be really hopeful that this was the king submitting to Christ finally. And I understand the desire to see that and the optimism for it and feel pretty bad about making a historical judgment with everything I know that comes afterwards. Okay. And Con, Constantine, fanboy or, <laughs> or well, hate fan? Well, he's got a great name. Let's just... Oh, he's <laughs> You've got to admit, you've got to admit that the, 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 the class never ends. I, I, I agree. I agree. Okay. Second um, speed question. Uh, sorry, third speed question is this, and this is based on a little um, Twitter kerfuffle we had. <laughs> if someone aspires to have political and religious authority, are they the Antichrist? So, Caitlin, we'll start off with you. I guess, I guess it depends what you mean by political, but my impulse is no. Again, I'm thinking of Augustine. Had both some political and some ecclesial authority. Okay, okay. Patrick? Um, I, I would say yes, but you have to nuance it, that they're using that authority to persecute God's people and do evil. So we get texts like Second Thessalonians 1, uh, Daniel, Revelation 13. It seems that um, uh, some future and past uh, power is going to come where they will um, use political and religious authority at the same time. Okay. And so with, with nuance, yes. With nuance. Yes. Uh, and con. <laughs> uh, well, Mark, I'm sorry. I have to reject the premise of the question. There's no the antichrist. The language only appears in John's letters and it refers to anyone who was with Christ and then repels against Christ. So I don't know, Con. I think the church fathers would combine the beast with the Antichrist. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, uh, sure. But, you know, I'll if you're going to take slide. the I'll... New Testament language seriously, then. <laughs> well, I, know, well I, I do want to do that. I do want to do that. I have to admit. Okay. I, I'm all about good. taking the New Testament seriously. But that's good. Okay. Well, let's, let's continue our conversation. Um, first question uh, will be for uh, Patrick. Um, what does the gospel teach us about politics? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the first thing I thought of was uh, Jesus's first words in Mark 1.15 when he came, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Uh, we usually put that in a religious bucket, you know, uh, kingdom, repent, believe, gospel. These are all religious terms. Jesus is coming to um, change your heart and have you invite him in, in, into your own heart. Um, which is not all bad, but uh, I tend to think if you read those words carefully, those words are actually political terms, kingdom. Um, he's, he's coming to reform all of society. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's the ambassador for that kingdom. Um, they need to reform their life and, and pledge allegiance um, to this new good news message. And as you all know, euangelion was a term that was used often in political contexts um, for a Caesar or a Roman governor or um, just anyone in the political sphere who had won victory. And so all these terms actually have political connotations. And so when we think about the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, it's a very political message. And ultimately that message sent Jesus to the cross. And on the cross, he was crucified. 
um, as a rebel. Um, and so what you see on the cross is this unique mixture of submission and subversion. Jesus submits the Roman government. Um, they declare him innocent. But at the same time, as he dies, he's actually um, being enthroned as the king of the universe and undercutting actually Rome's authority and all other, other authorities on this earth. And so when we come and we think about the gospel, the gospel is fully political. And Jesus died as um, really a political rebel. And he did so so that he might be the good and righteous and true shepherd king that really we're all longing for. And so as we look at our governing systems, there are better and worse governing systems, but all of them ultimately fail to bring in the kingdom. Only one will bring in the kingdom. That's Jesus Christ himself. And he has started that reform now but it will not be completed until the day he returns. And so that has a lot of implications even for, I would argue, I mean, I'm a Baptist, but um, church and state relations. Um, because I do think we live between the times. And so um, we aren't called to um, institute or um, we're not called to make uh, our nation Christian. Um, we are called to be prophetic witnesses for that kingdom, which is still to come. It's already here, but still to come. And I think sometimes we get confused, you even ask the question in terms of relation between religion, politics with the Antichrist. But sometimes we get confused and we think, well, we need to, we need to make this happen now. And uh, as a good Baptist, I, I still believe in the separation of church and state and that we do need a division there. Oh, good. Con, uh, question for you. What's something you think American Christians can learn from Christians outside America? Or why should they why should they care about what other people think? Like, I don't know about you, Con, but when I express opinions about American politics, believe it or not, some Americans say, well, who are you and why should I care? You know, this is not your backyard. Um, but because of social media and my many visits, I feel like I live in the 51st state of America uh, because I live in this massive Anglophone world. Uh, what What do you think? Christians and American can learn from Christians outside America? Or I guess in other words, why should people listen to us? Oh, Con <laughs> would, be the, would be the question. Well, one thing I think um, can be helpful is to disentangle um, what is a product of American culture and history as opposed to a product of reading the Bible and Christian formation. So disentangling Christian theology from your cultural uh, assumptions and obviously, we all need to live in our world. Um, and so, you know, we, we're sort of trying to figure out how following Jesus and, and reading the scriptures, you know, will translate into our culture. But um, but I think something you mentioned earlier, you know, it can be difficult for all of us to disentangle. Now, what, what here is actually sort of universal Christianity and what here is is just being guided by my own cultural assumptions in history. So that'd be one thing. Uh, another thing is, um, I think um, Australia in particular is probably about 30 years ahead of America in terms of secular secularization. Mm. Um, and um, I would encourage Americans to, um, to maybe look at Australian culture and, and how the church is operating within it for better or for worse um, and learn lessons. Um, so rather than try to sort of stop the, the march of secularization, I think uh, American Christians would be better off to prepare um, to think through, you know, what does it mean to love your neighbor in a increasingly secular culture? What does it mean 
uh, to bear witness to Christ in, in an increasingly secular culture? What does it mean to do church um, in, in, you know, in these sorts of things? And especially as political privileges mm. potentially lessen, um, what does that look like? And it's not necessarily, I want to say it's not necessarily a bad thing. It sound, might sound doom and gloom, but actually the church often thrives in um, those uh, contexts in which it's on the margins of society. So it might ultimately be a very good thing for American Christianity. Okay, and good. Uh, and question for you, uh, Caitlin. Um, what will be the benefits of knowing more about America's own culture and history for the way we think about politics in the present? Yeah, I mean, I think for both Christians and non-Christians in America, our political history has been shaped by Christianity, especially by the words of scripture. And so it would benefit us to understand how that's happened, um, especially for Christians to learn the habits that have really been passed down to us, not just habits, you know, kind of properly hermeneutical habits that we might get from our traditions or our churches, but the habits we have for reading scripture for political purposes that really get handed down by our forebears in our own country. And I think if there's anything kind of looking at all of the history that I've been studying that it's taught me, it's that the hardest thing for us to do in any context, I'm sure, but especially what I have learned in American history, it is really hard for us to hear the word of the Lord against ourselves, borrowing Bonhoeffer's language of we need to be able to hear it against us. It, it, it goes against our seeming interests um, very often, and it's hard to hear it. And probably the most kind of profound place I see this described in scripture is in 2 Kings 22, when Josiah finds the law and goes to Hulda, and Hulda is able to read the law and say, things are not good for us. Like judgment is coming. She was able to both say the word of the Lord against the interests of the people. And then Josiah, to his credit, actually heard it, which is like one of the few times that we have this moment of judgment is coming. You have failed. And someone actually is able to hear it and repent. Very often it's, no, I'm going to justify what we've done. Or no, God wouldn't possibly actually follow through with these judgments or we'll be fine. This is, I think, a really powerful picture for us to evaluate our own practices and say, like Hulda, are we able to read God's world around us and God's word faithfully and determine here and now what is God demanding of us? And then when it comes to Josiah saying, are we the kind of people who have been shaped and formed such that when the word of the Lord is against us, when judgment is coming, when our idea of what a powerful, strong country looks like isn't what we're owed, can we hear it? Or do we, as the audience that Bonhoeffer was talking to, say, no, 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 we'll be powerful, we'll be successful, we'll be fine. And, and that speech that this Bonhoeffer line comes from is very famous, where he says this. But the part that I really think people miss is at the very end of his speech, he's describing this man, you know, what, as we've just been talking about secularization, he's describing this man who comes to him and says, the church is dead. The ch there's no way the church is rising again, the church is dead. And Bonhoeffer's response to this is to say that the, the pious faithless we'll see the church's decline and say, no, 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 she'll rise again. We'll get our resources together. We'll work harder. We'll, we'll resurrect her. It'll be fine. But the actually faithful that aren't just pious and faithless, but the true faithful will say, actually, the church lives in her dying. That's the gospel, that God is faithful to us, even in our seeming decline. And that's the kind of word of the Lord against us that I think we need to learn to hear. And our history can help us do that, to say it's so clear in hindsight that God was speaking a word against your interests when you were enslaving and oppressing other humans for your own comfort and security. They couldn't hear it. We can see with, with hindsight that that was true. And I think learning that history can help us really take a hard look at ourselves and say, where are we missing what scripture says 
that isn't aligned with our values, with our comfort, with our security. Okay, that's terrific stuff. That's terrific stuff. Um, well, I want to change tack now. I, I think we've got to broach maybe the elephant in the room. Um, there is this thing, you may have heard it, called Christian nationalism. Now, I'm hearing things like this is the single greatest threat to American civilization, to other people saying this is just a few angry Theo bros on Twitter in a couple of churches. <clears throat> is Christian nationalism really a problem? Now, I have to say on Twitter this morning, I saw a video of Mike Flynn telling pastors to put aside their Bible and to read more of the Constitution. Now, I don't, I don't mind the American Constitution. I, it's got some good stuff in it, but I'm not too sure if I want to use it to displace the Bible. So, I, look, I'll just throw this out. Is Christian nationalism a real threat, or is this just like in a very small niche of people who are amplified far more than they deserve? So let me, let me throw it open to, our, to my distinguished um, interlocutors here. <laughs> Don't all jump in at once. Don't all jump in at once. All right, I'll jump in. Um, yes, I think it's a real threat. I think it's always been a threat in American history. I think there's been a long history of um, the intermingling of um, politics and religion in such a way that um, the concept of a Christian nation has sort of always been looming. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the the fervor um, that we see as we approach the, the next election cycle um, is partly driven by um, a Christian nationalistic energy. Yeah. So that's my view. Can I relate a funny ant an anecdote on this? One thing I learned from reading the Alexander Hamilton biography is Alexander Hamilton considered running against Jefferson on the ticket of a Christian political party. Interesting fact. So Interesting. Hamilton, the Christian nationalist, did not make it into Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. That bit never got in. That bit never got in for some reason. Uh, hmm. But yeah, I mean, you could say there's always been a sort of nationalist um, tinge that sort of veered in and out. Hmm. Uh, hmm. Although my understanding is it sort of increased in the 1980s with Reagan, but I think it's even got deeper roots. But whether hmm. it's a real threat, I don't know. Patrick, Kalen, do you people, uh, do you feel, you know, this is, I would say this is a safe space to chat, but this will be broadcast fairly <laughs> and uh, I'd hate to see this read out at a, at a trial at some point. Um, so feel, feel free to, um, feel free to um, comment or not comment as you, as you feel the spirit leading. Mm. I'm happy to go, but I was, I want, wanted to give Caitlin a chance if she wanted to first. Um, go for it. Okay. Uh, yeah, I would say I'm more concerned, maybe make a distinction between like a populist Christian nationalism than I am concerned about thoughtful denominations who might uh, differ from me on the relationship between church and state. Um, so the more populist Christian nationalism that seems to have more fervor um, does seem to combine this kind of the hope of the kingdom with the hope of the nation mm. in a way that concerns me um, where we begin getting statements like we heard Michael Flynn saying, like, you need to open your constitution more when I'm preaching yeah. or when someone's preaching than the Bible. That That's really concerning to me. 
I'm not in those circles, so it's hard for me to know like how widespread is that. It sounds really loud on the internet, and I just don't. It's hard for me to like how how big is that movement. Um, and then I also would just want to make the distinguishing factor between some people claim Christian nationalism is any influence that Christianity has on our nation, but I don't. I don't think that's what Christian nationalism is. And so to advocate for your beliefs, your values in the public, public sphere, I, w I would just say is not the type of Christian nationalism we're talking about. So some would, I think some would call me a Christian nationalist in some sense, but that's, I don't think that's what we're discussing. And I think everyone advocates for their beliefs and their views in the public square. And actually um, in, in the American politic, I encourage everyone to do that. We're all doing that. And what we're trying to do is come together and say, how do we live together with these different beliefs and these different values? So um, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, th thanks, Peter. I think those are helpful um, distinguish distinguishments you're making between, you know, different views of church and state, a populist fervor. And, you know, uh, you know, it doesn't mean Christians can't be politically involved, because if you go for the absolute separation of church and state, then you can't have a Martin Luther King. You know, that's right. I mean, he's yeah. speaking that's politically. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what, so I'll relate you a story. Me and Connell know this. Uh, uh, a while back, we had a, a Pentecostal prime minister called Scott Morrison. And on the left, there were some people complaining that, you know, we Australia is now a soft theocracy because we had a um, Pentecostal prime minister. And there was that there were actual conspiracy theories that Scott, that Hillsong was taking over the Australian government. On the, the left wing conspiracy, <laughs> it was hilarious. And I, I saw someone said two thirds of the government of members in the cabinet are members of Hillsong Church. And Scott Morrison was Pentecostal, but he wasn't a member of Hillsong. So yeah, you do get some weird stuff on the left and the right. Mm -hmm. Left and the right. Um, I want to I want to finish up with one final question. Uh, and I think this is this is an interesting. Kate, Caitlin didn't answer about Christian nationalism, though. Oh, sorry, we didn't Patrick, hear her. Patrick, Patrick sorry. Yeah, you, you're trying to dodge a bullet, uh, Caitlin. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I actually I spend a chunk, a small chunk of time in this book that's coming out in August or in, on August twenty second, uh, talking about Christian nationalism and partially saying what Patrick was just saying. Of this is a real concern. I do think not. I don't know how widespread it is among the average people in congregations, but what concerns me is like the real fervor that it can excite at the level of government authority. But I also want to be really careful because you can pull some statements from throughout our history. Um, one of the examples I use in the book is Mariah Stewart, who was a really important abolitionist, women's rights activist, um, lived during the Civil War era. And she would often combine biblical claims and claims towards the Constitution. She would appeal to both and say, this is why we need to hold America to its promises. America has said these are its ideals. I want to appeal to those, actually, on behalf of really righteous goals. And so I think, again, unsurprisingly, going back to our history is helpful because we can see some of the worst examples of this where, you know, early colonists claimed promises of the land to Israel in the terms of the American land and genocided Native Americans because of a supposed divine promise of land. That's reprehensible. We have to look at that, and then we also have to look at these examples where any combination of faith and politics, I don't think it's Christian nationalist, in part because I want to say, as you just said, that Martin Luther King Jr. was doing something faithful, that the civil rights movement was doing something faithful. And I think what that really teaches us is one of the questions at play here is power. Um, I don't trust the most powerful people to use the Christian faith well. I have seen lots of examples of really marginalized people appealing to it on really faithful ways. That's, that's a good way to put it. Good way to put it. Glad we came back to you. Um, well, let me let me finish off with this question. 
and I think this is an interesting one. And this is this this becomes what I call a meta uh, political theology questions. Should Christians be committed to a liberal democracy? Um, now I know uh, now I know Luke Luke Bretherton. He believes yes, and yeah. I, I was persuaded by Luke. And I, the reason I ask this that there there is a um, a tendency to critique um, liberalism. Um, you know, which is you know very much related to expressive individualism, and you know you see that in political philosophers like Patrick Deenan and others. And people are saying, isn't 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 like you know isn't uh, Orban in in Hungary great because you know he's 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 pursuing a deliberate illiberalism sort of Christian identity. Now I think I think Orban gets a lot of unfair press, but that's I mean that's a long story. But should Christians be committed to a to a liberal democracy or? Oh, look, you know, you can you can you can be a faithful Christian, you know, under, under in a Muslim country or in a communist country or in a in a monarchy. Should Christians be committed to a particular species of government, particularly the one we call liberal democracy, since we we all here live in variations <coughs> of a liberal democracy? So uh, let let me let me throw that one out to you. Um, any particular feelings on on that? It. I'll say something first, and then you guys can correct me. <laughs> um, you know, I'll maybe say two things that might sound contradictory, but I think they ultimately go together. As I study the scriptures in relation to politics, it seems that the Bible is not specific enough to say we have to be committed to that. It seems that Christians can exist faithfully under um, governing systems multiple governing systems. <laughs> you just look at the Old Testament, totalitarian states, there's Christians serving in the government there. Um, you know, so you just, I think it's hard biblically to say this is the way it has to be for Christians. So that that's my first statement. Now I'm going to say something that sounds totally contradictory. But I'm so situated in, in, in our country and in, in our way of organizing ourselves, I would say that a liberal democracy does seem to highlight certain aspects of the, a Christian theology of a human being and their rights and their freedoms that all individuals should have. That seems to align to me the most with the scriptures and the theology of the scriptures. So I'm, I know that sounds contradictory, but I think Christians can exist and are able to exist in any governing system. But at the same time, we should be advocating for the one that brings the most human flourishing. Hmm. And I think it, from my limited historical knowledge, <laughs> it does seem that a liberal democracy brings about the most ingenuity, the most um, human freedom that and not perfectly. I mean, you look at our history, right? There's there's tons of um, awful things that we have done. Um, but at the same time, I think um, like we we abolished slavery because we had a certain governing system that allowed for us to do that. So 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 obviously this is a much longer conversation. But um, I think both of those things can be true at the same time. Yeah. Any thoughts, Con Caitlin? I'll say since you you brought my advisor into it, um, I I think he would agree that I think what Patrick just said is a really it's not contradictory. I think that really describes the fact that all of these questions, the the important political and ethical questions facing us, are not as we've sometimes kind of deceived ourselves to think 
just yes, no universal questions that scripture will pop out a verse that sort of answers for us. If any of my historical research taught me anything, it's that the actually most faithful people tended to be saying, I'm like I said before, I'm reading God's word and I'm reading God's world. And I'm saying, what power do I have? What position am I am I in? What are the conditions around me? And what most faithfully in this time and place reflects the truth of God's concern for the dignity of all humans, for flourishing communities in which authority is shared and the generational impulse to accumulate wealth and power is has some check against it, even if imperfect. And so I think it actually is a, just a better way to go about the question is to say, we're always going to have to be discerning that in this time and place. Like, is this the best or is it not? That kind of question, I think in and of itself, asking it is a kind of faithfulness to assume that I'm always going to be asking anew with new conditions. Is this most faithful or is there something else I should be advocating for? Even if it doesn't come to pass, whatever condition I'm in, there's a form of faithfulness that would be right. But when it comes to what is the best system for me to advocate for or to write theology books about or whatever, I don't think those will be kind of universal prescriptions for all times and places. They'll be contingent because we're finite fallen creatures that have to make those kinds of judgments without kind of an explicit prescription in scripture. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, and Con? Um, I guess I would say uh, I like a liberal democracy. And what I one of the things I like about it is um, it allows for a real marketplace of ideas. And I think Christianity is at its best when it's seeking to persuade. As the Apostle Paul says, we, we seek to persuade, not operate through coercion or through tricks or manipulation. Um, and so I think, you know, it should stand up against um, the alternatives. And if we really believe that it has a robust message that's worthy of people's consideration, then we're not threatened by those alternate alternate um, worldviews uh, or religions or forms of spirituality or materialism or whatever. Um, if it stands up, if it holds up, we put it up against the others in a free marketplace of ideas and see how it fares. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've learned is that uh, liberal democracies really thrive in a land where you have a history of missional Protestantism, because the whole point of missional Protestantism is people have to be free to choose to have the real pious life. So it can't just be a top-down imposition like a stale state religion, people have got to have the freedom to choose to worship in a particular way. So, and this is what others have said, you know, where you find missionary Protestantism, you normally find liberal democracy. So, so the two kind of go together, which I, I think is an interesting observation. Um, mm. But yeah, it's, it's the limits of the, the, the liberalism. I mean, one, one question I ask my students, you, you don't have to answer it, by the way, is would you rather live in a country where Christian morality is enforced at the point of a gun or would you rather live in a country where the government supports, you know, gay pride parades? You know, which which one would you live in? Uh, and that's, that's a, that leads to some good discussions about, you know, do we have to Christianize our society and, and, and what are the limits of liberalism? Because, you know, we want to tolerate other people's freedom, but there's always got to be limits to the things that we might tolerate but yeah that's one that's one of the disputes about i guess liberalism and the state and and christianity well it has been wonderful talking to all of you this has been uh terrific um yeah i've really en enjoyed this discussion so yeah, it's a, a, a fun uh provocative subject 
And you've all been such terrific guests, Caitlin, Con, and Patrick. I wish you every success with your respective books. And I hope they're able to shape the conversation and really encourage Christians about how to think Christianly about politics, the state, and voting. So thanks for sharing your time with me. Thanks for having us on, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks.